enjoying some coffee and water. Uh, but nonetheless, it is just really, really great to see so many of you. And uh, you know, it's always part uh, great to be part great of a fellowship that's all over the world. And so I'm really excited that Mrs. Suzette Clunas is here with us this morning. Uh, it is so great to see you. We, Melanie and I have known the Clunases forever, for well over three decades. Uh, they're part of the congregation there. Uh, they live in the Toronto area, and uh, just the, she's in town for, uh, for some work. Uh, for, and so she's here worshiping with us. That's always great. It's good to be part of the capital of a nation, isn't it? And so people come on in and uh, certainly enjoy some fellowship. We're going to be talking this morning about a topic that at times it's not a very popular topic. It's one of those topics that uh, oftentimes it's described as it's none of your business. I pray that this morning, as we study God's Word, and we are not going to be able to do justice on this just for a few minutes, okay? And so we're going to make this a five-part series. And the series is entitled, God and Money. Now, now I know oftentimes when a topic like this is talked about, it's because there is a fundraising campaign that is about to happen. Well, I want to tell you that is not at all what this is about. I want to talk about a topic that is remarkably well, well versed in the scriptures. As a matter of fact, Jesus talks a lot about money. But before I, I go there, it is remarkable that the Canadian consumer debt, what is consumer debt? That's not what a government owes. It's what you and I owe. We owe $2.32 trillion dollars trillion dollars. What's consumer debt? Consumer debt is credit cards, car loans, and house payments. Okay, in other words, what you as a consumer owe. What I as a consumer owe. It's about $25,000 per person. I don't know where you fall on that spectrum. So many people today are living stress-filled life. So much so that they're literally working to pay off something that they bought last week or two years ago, or three years ago. And our life taking our own lives and at an all-time high. We just, if you realize, we just witnessed the conviction of a man who was the attorney general and it's the family goes back to 1920 that his father and his father's father and his father's father were the attorney general of that area. It's 1920. Killed his wife and his son. Who knows all the details, but certainly it cannot be uh, uh, dismissed that he was, and he admitted to this, he was in financial trouble. And he wanted the, he wanted the uh, insurance money. 
One of the biggest crimes that was committed just recently, Sam, uh, Sam Friedman. Right now he's being tried for mismanagement of a lot of people's money, about $32 billion. And the story goes on and on and on. Wars are fought. There's so much stress. Largely due, I believe, to the fact on our disposition towards money. As a matter of fact, they tell us that about 50% of marriages end in divorce. That's not to mention many that end already in the heart. That's just an ends in divorce. 90%, they say, of divorces has something to do with money. Not even infidelity. The cause for divorce, the primary cause for divorce in most divorces in our nation is not due to infidelity. It's due actually to mishandling of finances and the stress that comes from that. Interestingly, about 30 to 40 percent, it depends how you want to count it, of Jesus' parables has to do with money and the way he talks about it. Would you believe that Jesus talks more about money than he does about faith, prayer, heaven, and hell? combined? The Bible tells us there are about 2,300 verses that talks about money. Now, if I were, I don't know if you ever met people like this, right? Um, they have grandchildren, and all that they can talk about is their grandchildren. Or somebody has a dog and they think it's the cutest thing in the world and you're looking at it and you're saying, what are you even talking about? But you know, like I do, whatever someone talks about someone a lot, it's important to them. You ever talk to someone and they can't shut up a particular thing? That would be me when the Maple Leafs win the Stanley Cup. I've never seen Martin laugh so hard in my life. He might be right about that. How could we lose to Vancouver last time? Anyway, that's another discussion for another time. But what's in our heart talk a lot about? It's just the way it is. What's on somebody's mind? And if we were to use the same rationale, it must be important to God. It must be important to Jesus. Especially with the doom and gloom that's been predicted by over 90% of economists about an impending recession, some believe that it's already begun. The panic that is being caused. It's my area of life. And so, just in the recent past, we've seen, and some of us can't even understand it, billionaires committing suicide. Just happened a couple, uh, a few days ago. And no one could figure it out. Why is this person committing suicide? And a lot of us believe a bill of goods that the world is selling. But like everything else, it must be filtered through the Scriptures. What? 
does God say about it? They did a survey, and it's a topic that ministers least want to talk about. Oftentimes, because there's an agenda, there's a criteria, and it's in their hearts, and so they're wondering if they're going to present whatever is presented in a way that the people who are listening to it is going to like it. Well, I've been thinking, and I've been preparing for this for months. And so that you know, I don't, I don't prepare a sermon on Saturday night. Or even last week. It's done months before. I pray about it. I think about it. I study on it. And I throw, put it aside. And then I come back and pray on it. I study on it. I read on it. I, I, I want to make sure that this pulpit is not a pulpit where I can present something because I want you to do something. But we present the gospel in an unadulterated manner. And however the Spirit speaks to you, then that's between you and God. And so we, with that introduction, with some caveats, I want to be able to talk about this topic in a manner that is true to what the scripture teaches. But I got to tell you, there are some things that, is a, that this it, and makes me feel uncomfortable. Not presenting it, and there's partially that, but how it hits me. I got to tell you, there's some of it that I struggle to absolutely believe. I love it as, a, as something to put on a wall. I love it as a punchline. But as a prism through which I live my life, that's really, really difficult when I read the scripture. And so I wanted to start off by talking about This idea in 1 Timothy chapter 6. 1 Timothy chapter 6. I want to read this. I want to talk about money. And so I'll go and stand over here and I'll read it with you guys. It says this. But godliness with contentment is great gain. For we brought nothing into the world, and we can take nothing out of it. But if we have food and clothing, we will be content with that. That right there challenges me. But here's the scripture that I want to focus on. Those who want to get rich, those who desire to get rich, fall into temptation and a trap and into many foolish and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. Some people eager for money have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many griefs. Let's deal with some fallacies. The Bible doesn't say money is evil. That's, that's not what it says. It says, for the love of money. As a matter of fact, when Job went through what he went through, at the end of his life, at the end of his Whatever the destruction of his family, of his properties, God blessed him with twice as much. He was rewarded because of his faithfulness. And throughout the scriptures, we see that idea. 
But there is a mindset that says those who desire to get rich fall into the trap and temptation of many. And I know what you think because it's what I think. We think, I'm not one I'm the many. I mean, I just, I'm just different. I know I'm not one of the many. After all, have I not taken the narrow road? But what I want to do this morning is to do an introduction about our idea of what God says about money. So I want to make it very clear that that's not what the dispositions that the scripture teaches. I wanted to read a quote from Philip Yancey, and if you don't know him, he's an author that I that I admire, but, but that doesn't mean you need to, but I do. And um, this is what it says. He says this, this. Many Christians, any one issue that haunts them and never falls silent. For some, it involves sexual identity. For others, a permanent battle against doubt. For me, the issue is money. It hangs over me, keeping me off balance, restless, uncomfortable, nervous. I often feel pulled in opposite directions over the money issue. Sometimes I want to sell all that I own, join a Christian commune, and live out my days in intentional poverty. poverty. At other times, I want to rid myself of guilt and enjoy the fruits of our nation's prosperity. Mostly, I wish I did not have to think about money at all. But I must somehow come to how the Bible's very strong statements about money. If we were to be honest, there's a struggle within all of us. And this idea is not so that we can be the one, that person who sells everything and, and just goes into a commune, but, but the idea with the opulence that we live. I mean, Solomon, if he were to look at the way we live our lives, would be envious of even the poorest of us. Rockefeller, who is often described as the richest man who ever lived when it comes to today's money, would not enjoy and does not enjoy the freedom and the things that we have in our lives. There are billionaires who lived before us that didn't, un, didn't have air conditioning and heat, heat, indoor plumbing. I think oftentimes we need to put things into perspective. But what I wanted to talk about is this idea, how does God see money? I love what C.S. Lewis says. He who has God and everything thing has no more than he who has God alone. Let me read that again. He who has God and everything has no more than he who has God alone. That's a profound statement. Do we believe that? What are you living to do? Pay bills? The education that you are going for, why? So you think it's going to get you a lot of money? Your vocation. It's 
why I'm in the ministry. I know it pays me a lot of money. But it helps us to understand where our hearts at with this mind and wrestling with it and struggle with it. And so today, I'm not going to try and tell you what to think. But I want you to start wrestling with what the scripture says about God and money. Wrestle with it. Don't dismiss it. As we do a lot of things about the scripture. It is baffling to me. And honestly, at times incredulous. How Jesus talked to people and the way that he equated it with their hearts towards money was a reflection on their heart towards God. Oftentimes, he correlated their salvation with their response towards money. Remember the rich young ruler? She came, he came up to Jesus and he said, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And you know what he said? Go sell everything you have. And the rich man went away to sad. You know what I instinctively would have done? And I'm ashamed to say at times have done, even as a well-informed person, disciple, even minister. When I have someone in my, like that in my grasp, so to speak, And I see clearly a disposition to where wealth was so important in this person's life. I often sit with them and try to help them to understand how money could be such a great thing for the kingdom of God. And Jesus says, I need your money. You think that I need your money? When Zacchaeus heard about Jesus, he went and climbed a sycamore fig tree because he wanted to see the Lord. And so he climbs, climbs a sycamore fig tree. I like to say that, as you can tell. <laughs> and so he sees Jesus, and he says, Hey, can I come? Jesus said to him, Can I come to your house today? And Zacchaeus responds to when Jesus talked to him about being in paradise. He says, I'm going to sell half. All I have, I give half to the poor. And anybody that I've cheated, I'm going to pay back four times the amount. Here's a food for thought. In modern day Western Christianity, we believe in the aspect that Jesus says he calls to deny yourself, give up everything, everything, and follow me. To actually hate your father and mother, brother and sister, even your own life. If you don't do that, you can't even be my disciple. To pick up your cross every day and deny yourself, or else, not that you'll be a great disciple, you can't even be a disciple. You can't even get in the gate, so to speak. And so I ask you this. Do you believe that Jesus could ask us to turn our life and actually have that kind of lordship and our disposition and our mindset and our attitude towards money doesn't change? 
think about that. Yet we have a brand of Christianity in North America, in the Western world, that says, yes, I'm glad Jesus died for me. Sweet! The grace of God, the mercy of God, I love it. Oh, God so loves me, I'm now identified, not as a sinner, but as a saint, not as a servant, but as a son. Love it! But our disposition to that which actually captures us hasn't changed? How is that possible? Food for thought. You know, I've, I've heard that it's been said what Jesus does is that he disturbs the comfortable and he comforts the disturbed. I love it. When I, someone talks to me and I think. I don't like to sit there if I'm sitting there and the, the guy who's up here or the girl who's up here says everything I believe and everything I agree with. I want my heart and my mind to be challenged. Because I'm not watching a Maple Leaf game where everybody wants them to win, right? Mark? <laughs> well, maybe not. But maybe apparently not. I'm in the wrong crowd. But that's not what it's about. But Jesus' attitude and God's attitude towards money is quite, quite remarkable. Hopefully, I'm starting to get you to think that. I want my mind and I want my attitude towards money be disposed of that which God describes in the scripture. You know, when those guys that were involved in some, for, some form of sorcery and, and, and um, they were converted in the book of Acts, you know how the Bible describes their act of conversion or one of the acts after they were, conver were converted? That they burned what they had that amounted to about $10 million. There was a connection towards their response to God and to Jesus and their attitude and disposition towards God money. Remember what I talked about before. I'm not saying that, not a, neither is God saying that money is evil or it's even bad. Man, we read in the scriptures very many people that God blessed abundantly. Abraham, David, Solomon. I mean, it, Moses, it goes on and on and on. But the idea is not whether or not we have money. But does money have us? And it goes from what we would like to actually how we live. And the world understands this and the preys on that psychology. And that's why you and I are in $2.32 trillion in debt. Because we have been fed something that that car that we have is not good enough. After all, it's three years old. And it doesn't have enough cup holders. And are you saying that it doesn't have a USB plug-in at the third row? This is a, what kind of car is this? Like 1912? And somehow, somewhere... And I know that we think we're not 
we don't succumb to these kinds of things. And I'm sure that's why McDonald's spends a billion dollars advertising, because it has no effect. And I'm sure it's why Fidelity, or Bank of Montreal, or RB, oh, it's why they spend literally hundreds of millions of dollars in advertising, because it has no effect. They just love to waste money. They prey on our ill-informed disposition towards what God has towards money. As people who have been redeemed, as people who, who, the songs we used to sing, or the attitude towards money, that should be part of the lyrics there. And it's just so important for us to understand this. This is what it says also in Matthew chapter 6. In Matthew chapter 6, it's up there. I'll read with you. In verses 19, it says, Do not store up for yourselves yourselves on earth, where moths and vermin destroy, where thieves break in and steal, but store up for yourselves yourselves in heaven, where moths and vermin do not destroy, and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. The eye is a lamp of the body. If your eyes are healthy, the whole body will be full of light. But if your eyes are unhealthy, your whole body your whole will be full of darkness. If then the light within you is darkness, how great is that darkness? And here is a statement that we try to defy in our mind. We think we live better than God. And this is what it says. No one can serve two masters. Either you will hate the one and love the other, or you will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot, 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 cannot serve both God and We don't argue, we don't, at least most of us, don't argue with the idea, hey, in order for us to love God, love God, to love God more than our wife, or our husband, or our brothers, or sisters in our own life. As a matter of fact, we probably say, that's what it means to be a disciple. And so you talk to the idea that it's, it's, it's about our devotion. We can't, we got to be devoted first to God, and then ultimately, we're going to be able to be devoted to our wives, our, our children, and so on and so forth. But you can't do both at the same time. And yet somehow, somewhere, it's the same idea that's written about in Matthew chapter 6 that says you can't serve both God and money. What are you beholden to? You know what's the funny thing about money? Nobody has enough. And I know you sit there and you say, man, if I had $10 million, I would be settled. I'm good. I'm cool with that. You talk to someone who has $10 million and see what they say. You say, if I had a billion, I'll be okay. Go ahead, talk to billionaires. Why was it such a hot topic even 2,000 years ago when Jesus was on the earth? Or so long ago in the time of Moses and David and what? Why? It's as if God knew something. Imagine that. Man, I remember when I was in university, and if I had $20, I had a lot.
There are times now that I find $20 in some pocket and it's like I never missed it. There are times now that you spend $20, you know, in future value and all that kind of stuff, but you spend $20 and, and you realize, you know what? You, did I lose it or did I spend it? <laughs> and you just move on. And you thought, man, if I had a few thousand dollars in my bank account, I will be so cool. Do you still have that disposition today? I don't. Because there's always something that I've got to do. My retirement, my children, inheritance, my wife being taken care of when I'm gone. Me being taken care of when she's gone. She's gone, perhaps, is the greater concern. <laughs> but there is something about this that God says towards money. And so, what I wanted to communicate this morning, perhaps more than anything, is that we just can't close our eyes and our mind towards our disposition towards money. It's important. I have wanted to elevate in your heart and your mind that this is a topic that's worth discussing. Because the Bible makes some claims that are absolutely ridiculous. Ridiculous. And so our attitude towards it will save you trips to the doctor. And that a recession, an impending recession, while it may squeeze us a little, it doesn't freak us out. That the attitude towards money listen, I'm fully aware that we all need money in order for us to be able to survive, okay? What is money? Money is a medium of exchange that you and I, there's nothing inherently valuable in a $20 bill. Is that we all decide that that piece of paper was worth $20. Right? There's nothing inherent. What it can buy, yes. So we need money to survive. That's not what I'm talking about. But it's this insatiable desire, a desire that cannot be quenched, that it's insatiable. And that our attitude towards money and our spirit towards it and what God says about it matters. That's what I wanted to do today, is to elevate your mind towards it. Please do not hear me say it, because it's not what I'm saying, and I don't believe it's what the Scripture teaches, that money doesn't matter. Of course it does. I'd be an idiot and lose all credibility if I were to tell you money doesn't matter. But of course it does. But if Jesus addresses, and God addresses this topic with such frequency, should we not examine it as well? Would, would I, as a shepherd, as a minister, as someone who preaches the gospel, can I be a good one and ignore that which was very prevalent on, from, the tongues, from the tongue of Jesus? Would I then be worth my salt if I were not to address our attitudes and our disposition and what God says about money? Would I then just be someone who just want to tickle your ear because it's a topic that you like? You wouldn't want me to. Because a few years from now, when we stand before God and you're going to say, why did that idiot minister never address this issue when it was so prevalent in the scriptures? 
Oh, you might not use the word idiot because you're trying to be nice, but that's what you're thinking. <laughs> and you know what? I have three children. Melanie does too. Um, we, have, <laughs> we have three children, a 35-year-old, a 29-year-old, and a 26-year-old. All of them are grateful for hard decisions that we have made in our life. At the time, they didn't like it. I, uh, my youngest started a podcast, and he had me as his first interview. And I said, you better have, no, I'm kidding. Um, he had made his first interview, and we talked about some things, and, and the way he thought, and the way about certain things, and the greatest Father's Day card I had is when he wrote to me, he says, Dad, I thank you for making the hard decisions in regard to raising me, and I'm, I reap the benefits of that today. I say that to say this. There, we can't be a malnourished person. You ever seen a disciple, or a, rather a person, who one arm is like three times as big as the other arm? And you say, that person is deformed. Or you see their leg muscles is so thick and they have skinny arms like mine. You said, dude, you're working out on your legs a little bit too much. You look deformed. That's the reason why I don't work out. It's I don't want to look deformed. <laughs> but it's just like that if we don't preach the whole gospel. If we don't talk about the scriptures and we are just have this one part of us and we look, ultimately when someone looks at us, we say, man, you are spiritually deformed. But you're strong in this and you are absolutely emaciated in this area. So Paul writes to Timothy in First chapter, First uh, Timothy chapter six, and so he he talks about the idea, right? We read that before that you should not pursue those who desire to become rich, and the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil, and people who actually do that. So we'll read right after what he says in the next section, First Timothy chapter six. And we pick it up right after that section. But you, man of God, that's kind of like a, a little dig. You call yourself a man of God? This is what it looks like. Okay, that's what he says. He says, okay, you man of God. Okay, you basketball player. Okay, you hockey player. Okay, you whatever, you know. You man of God, flee from all this. And so we... The, what he talked about a little earlier, right? That's the context of that passage. And pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, endurance, and gentleness. Fight the good fight of the faith. Take hold of the eternal life to which you were called when you were made, when you made your good confession in the presence of many witnesses. So, before, before we continue, I love what the scripture says. There is a dual of direction. And the duality of direction, he says this, you flee and you run towards. You run from one side and you just don't stay there. Then you run towards the other side. So you run from being the love of money, the desire to become rich. You leave that and you run towards what? what? We just read it. Go back a little bit, please. In verses, if we go back. But you, man of God, flee from all this and pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, endurance, and gentleness. And so there is a run. You're running. It depends which direction you're running in. And yet we fall into the trap. And I know you're the exception. 
Can you check out your credit card bill for me? Your bank statements? But we say we pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, endurance, and gentleness. Fight the good fight of faith. There's an idea here that this is not just, hey, let's just what be shall be. Is that the connotation you get here? Fight the good fight of the faith. What is he talking about? What he just talked about earlier? I ask you, if this was a topic of conversation 2,000 years ago, what do you think he's going to say today? He's going to say, you guys have arrived. <laughs> Scratch that. I know the 2.3 3 trillion. I know it's like what people say about pornography, right? Nobody does it. Yet it earns more money than basketball, football, hockey, NASCAR, baseball, put together. But nobody does it. Similarly, 2.32 trillion consumer debt. But, oh, we're immune. We, I got it under control. Why are you stressed out then? And this is not saying, oh my gosh, you got it all figured out. I'm saying, man, I struggled with this. Let's continue. Go to verse 13 now. In the sight of God, who gives life to everything and of Christ, Jesus. Is this a little slow? Who, while testifying before Pontius Pilate, made the good confession. I charge you to keep this command without spot or blame until the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ which God will bring about in his own time. God, the blessed and only ruler, the King of kings and the Lord of lords, who alone who is immortal and who lives in unapproachable light, whom no one has seen or can see, to him be glory and might forever. Amen. No other place does, God, does Paul describe God in this light. I think well, partially what he's saying here, listen, this is not just my thoughts. Heed my words. And so what we want to do for the next few weeks is to examine practically what does that look like, but the elevation of the importance of money in our life is what we want to start and, and discover. And I want to be a good minister to you. I really do. I don't want us to be malnourished spiritually. That we talk about things that sometimes people aren't willing to talk about. And to do justice to it, not because I want you to do something, but because this is what the Scripture teaches We don't fall prey. We don't get trapped. So as we take communion this morning, we think about God being gracious enough to warn us that there's a precipice ahead. Be mindful. Melly and I have gone on vacation to places where we've taken a ride, a tour guide, and there are some places that we've gone to and the trucks are, the buses are driving with one wheel over the edge of a 500-foot drop. Never again. There are no bars there. It's not like, and there's not even a warning. God 
has rescued us. And he wants us to be a light that we can approach this unapproachable light. Can you believe that? I love the poetry there. We can approach the unapproachable light. The King of kings, the Lord of lords, the Lord of glory. We can do that. You know how? Through Jesus. What he has done for us, to us, and because of us. And that's why we come together today to celebrate what Christ has done on the cross for us. And Sunday mornings, it's the time to recalibrate, to solidify, okay, what is this all about again? Yes, thank you. And so as we take the Lord's Supper, if you've not had a communion, please raise your hand. It's the way that we detect who, those who come late. I'm just kidding. Obviously, if you can raise your hand, please, and the, the ushers are going to the ushers are going to be uh, bringing it to you. And so, um, and so, community has changed dramatically since COVID. So we do now individual packets. There they are. They're coming there. So let us give thanks for what God has done for us and to us, and so that He 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 protects us from that precipice, that cliff that is there, that is a 500 foot drop. because of what Jesus has done. Let's go ahead and pray. Father, we're just so grateful for what your son has done. We're thankful for your word that is a lamp unto our feet. We thank you for your word that strikes us at times. There are times it comforts us and gives us a nice, sweet hug. There are times it jars us. There are times it alarms us. There are times it, it, it awakes us, Father, because sometimes we're falling asleep in certain areas of our lives. I thank you, God that your son paved the way ultimately for us so that we can have the right disposition towards things that are so important to you, that our hearts are completely bent towards you, and that in this life we don't fall into the trap that is set for us, but rather we pursue righteousness and godliness and faith and gentleness and endurance the Father, that our life resembles that. Thank you for the death of Christ because it meant life for us. Thank you as we take these emblems that is emblematic of your son's body and the blood that was shed for us. It's in the name of Jesus we pray. Amen.